there's, there's probably any number of, of descriptors or qualities that we could use to kind of capture the essence of American culture. We could talk about liberty, about democracy, about individualism, about capitalism, racism, exceptionalism. But I would argue that there are few qualities, and I say this, you know, mainly for the sake of, of, uh, of those who have grown up in this culture, but also for the sake of, of others with us here who uh, are newer to, you know, to the realities of American culture. But uh, I would argue that there, there are few qualities that capture the essence of American society better than greed. Perhaps more than any other single quality, greed makes sense of America's story, particularly the last hundred years or so of her, of her story. As I see it, greed is a central force and motivator behind so much of modern American politics, modern American wars, the pop culture and sports and entertainment that America has exported all around the globe. And of course, American business and enterprise and then obviously all the individual lifestyles uh, that, that make up our, our society, which are so defined by consumption and materialism, such that we as a nation generate almost 300 billion tons of material waste a year. And within this context uh, emerge companies like Amazon, and, and uh, which is you know, among the most materially uh, successful entities in world history. Jeff Bezos, the, the president and CEO of Amazon, his current net worth of $145 billion outranks the gross domestic products of Ukraine, Kuwait, Ecuador, and Ethiopia. That's one guy and, you know, only in America. So Americans didn't, obviously didn't invent greed. But if we believe that there are unseen powers and authorities that are kind of pulling the strings behind the scenes of world powers and societies, then I think we have to believe that in American society, the powers that motivate and unleash greed in the world have nearly perfected it. American greed and lust for more is pretty well captured by a famous quote by J.D. Rockefeller, who was kind of like the Jeff Bezos of his day in the, in the early 20th century. A reporter asked him, Mr. Rockefeller, how much is enough? And, and uh, Rockefeller smiled and said, just a little bit more. So from the foundations of our society, greed, which was turbocharged by, by white supremacy, it motivated the displacement of, of millions of indigenous people from their homelands. And it led to the, to the building of a national economy on the exploitative extraction of labor from black bodies. So from the inter, underpinnings, from the very origins of our society, greed has been a hallmark, a pillar of the society. And then in the last hundred years, it has flowered and flourished and proliferated in a way that, that ancient people could never have dreamed possible. It seems pretty revealing to me that in a, in a critical moment of national crisis uh, 20 years ago, in a speech very, very soon after 9-11, uh, President George W. Bush, he, 
he gave this, this rousing speech in which he exhorted Americans to demonstrate their patriotism and their resilient national spirit by, quote, going shopping more and getting down to Disney World and, quote, enjoying the life, uh, enjoying life the way we want it to be enjoyed. And Americans obliged. Economists were predicting a recession and it, and it didn't really happen. Um, and, and this, what, what he was delivering there in this speech was kind of hearkening back to the pro-consumption, pro-consumer propaganda of the 1950s, which is sometimes called the golden age of consumerism, where the American consumer was praised as a patriotic citizen because of their consumption, contributing to the, to the success of the American way of life. Uh, historian Elizabeth Cohen explains, quote, the good purchaser, according to this propaganda, devoted, was devoted to more and newer and better products. And this is what made them a good citizen. Since economic recovery after a decade and a half of depression and war depended on a dynamic mass consumption economy. And we're kind of hearing similar exhortations today where we've heard almost economic values pitted against the, the value of human life. It might not be a simple dichotomy, uh, but in America, pro-consumption propaganda has, has proliferated. Um, but as with all systemic evils, the temptation is always to place responsibility for it elsewhere, whether it's the government or your opposing political party or the code of laws or those particular people or that particular group. But systemic evils, they always require widespread complicity and involvement. Systemic sins, as, as many of us are, are, are taking a hard look at, like racism, uh, they require the involvement of the majority, whether through passive tacit approval or through the active engagement of a, of a very visible subset. It requires both complicit masses and uh, the active initiative taking of, of a visible subset. And then, the, so the only way that we will see greed's insidious power kind of excised from the soul of our nation is if, as, and when individuals begin taking personal responsibility for their complicity and their involvement in American systems of greed. And so must we. And the reasons are, are myriad. I've already begun kind of touching on some of them, but here's to name a few. There's a threat that, that American greed poses to the planet itself and for future generations of it. There are the ways that systemic greed always inevitably victimize the poorest and the most vulnerable. And there are the ways that greed does violence to the soul of every individual who gets caught and drawn into its web. We could go on and on and on. But uh, the ancient Christian theologian Thomas Aquinas, he captured well the essence of the moral evil of greed. And he said, so he's speaking to the, the, the moral character of greed. And he, just, he says that greed is a sin directly against one's neighbor. Since one man cannot overabound in external riches without another man lacking them. He goes on to say, it is a sin against God inasmuch as a man condemns things eternal for the sake of temporal things. 
And I think Aquinas is touching on the truest danger of greed for every individual. And that is that we would trade what is eternal and lasting and true for what is temporary and fading and false. And so we participate in a society defined and motivated by greed at our peril. Cultural greed is, is so much the air we breathe. So we, we constantly risk unwittingly buying into the idea that the accumulation of money and material possessions is somehow an ultimate good and will make us happy. Theologian Alan Hirsch says it well in his book, The Forgotten Ways, when he says, we have at our fingertips experiences and offerings available only to kings in previous eras. Offered heaven now, we give up the ultimate quest in pursuit of that which can be immediately consumed, be it a service, product, or pseudo-religious experience. Consumerism has all of the distinguishing traits of outright paganism, and we need to see it for what it really is. And this works hand in hand with, with what Jesus himself taught when he said, what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose or forfeit your own soul? And the danger of gaining the whole world but losing our soul is an ever-present danger for those of us who live in a culture that is so defined by affluence and greed. Now, one of the reasons that these, these systems of greed have been allowed to flourish as they have in our society is because we live in a context that has come to be defined by radical individualism. And in that context, most people operate as if my money is my business. And because of that, there are really very few topics of discussion that are more taboo in private and in the church than money and personal finances. Other than capital campaigns to raise money for buildings or perhaps self-help courses, most churches just don't talk about money very much. But how in the world are we going to work out the implications of our faith and our apprenticeship to Jesus into every area of our, of our individual and corporate lives if we kind of exempt this critical area from discussion? But secondly, we, we do a great dishonor to the scriptures when we avoid talking about money because the scriptures are not silent about the issue of money and possessions and economics. But we, we can tend to treat it as if it were just a private, individual, or subjective thing. Here's how Richard Foster describes this problem in Celebration of Discipline. He says, Often it is felt that our response to wealth is an individual matter. The Bible's teaching in this area is said to be strict, strictly a matter of per, uh, private interpretation. We try to believe that Jesus did not address himself to practical economic questions. But he says, no serious reading of scripture can substantiate such a view. The biblical injunctions against the exploitation of the poor and the accumulation of wealth are clear and straightforward. Amen. The Bible challenges nearly every economic value of contemporary society. Jesus declared war on the materialism of his day. And I, Foster writes, would suggest that he declares war on the materialism of our day as well. 
And it's interesting that we, we very often demand transparency with finances and, 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 and other things. We demand that of our institutions and our leaders as well we should. But I wonder if we are nearly as open to transparency about our own finances. Do we open ourselves and our budgets to the accountability of our brothers and sisters in the church so that the wisdom of Jesus might fully inform and shape them? I think we've probably all heard a brother or sister confess sin with regard to pornography or bitterness or resentment before. But has anyone, I don't just ask this rhetorically, has anyone ever heard a confession of greed before in your life? Have you ever heard anyone say, I confess that I struggle with greed? Anyone? I can't see all the thumbnails, but Aaron has. Well, you're, you're disproving my point, Aaron. Kat, Kat and Taylor are both raising their hands. Okay. Then, then, then I, I, I with, withdraw this particular point. Um, but in my experience, uh, admissions of, uh, of guilt with regard to greed uh, come much farther down the line than other, you know, sort of more, um, you know, insidious or, or um, just regardless, we don't talk about personal finances a great deal. And, and I would argue that it's because we've, we've not made it common practice to let conversations about the way we use our money see the light of day. But as followers of Jesus, I just wonder, are, are we going to let our views and our habits with regard to money, possessions, and economics be shaped by the broader cultural forces around us, or are we going to let them be shaped by the scriptures and by Jesus of Nazareth? And I really do mean to pose that as a dichotomy because I believe it is a dichotomy. I, I believe you, you cannot have, uh, have both. It's, it's one or the other. And so for us, as we're working to build a new and healthy church in this city, which is known worldwide as a center of business and economics, and for us in this particular time where we're in, we're in unprecedented uh, economic upheaval and transition, how, how in this time and in this place will we, will we be a countercultural witness to our city in this critical area, unless we talk about it and unless we live out a better way. And so in order to begin doing that, uh, we're looking today at, at part of our answer to those questions in this second startup practice, the practice of giving. And Jesus, as it turns out, had quite a bit to say about this. Uh, once again, Richard Foster writes, Jesus speaks to the question of economics more than any other single issue. And if, in a comparatively simple society, our Lord lays such strong emphasis upon the spiritual dangers of wealth, how much more should we who live in a highly affluent culture seriously take seriously the economic question? He goes on, the majority of Christians have never seriously wrestled with the problem conveniently ignoring Jesus's many words on the subject. The reason is simple. This discipline directly challenges our vested interests in an affluent lifestyle. 
Jesus's teachings and commands about wealth and possessions, they hit head on our vested interests in a lifestyle of affluence. So as apprentices of Jesus, will we take a bold and courageous look at his countercultural, world-changing approach to money, possessions, and economics? Will we determine to live as if Jesus knew better than we do and as if he knew better than the talking heads that we have all around us? The, the secrets of happiness and freedom, which is to say the secrets of the kingdom. Now, as I said several weeks ago in our, in our first official startup practice of, of prayer and worship, each of these explorations in this time, they're really just going to be kind of cursory glimpses of each of these practices. But the hope is that they will at least provide us a starting point for, for language and application for each of these things so that we can be working together to build the culture of this new church. And so before we look at one particular teaching of Jesus that, that is sort of central to his take on money and possessions, I think it might provide a, a more helpful starting point for a, a biblical look at, the, at this topic if we look at kind of the broad strokes of Jesus's life and what that sort of 10,000 foot view of his life reveals about the heart and character of God. Because Jesus didn't just talk about money and generosity. His teachings were, first of all, embodied in his own life. So there was no do as I say, not as I do with Jesus. He, first of all, lived a life of flourishing and freedom. And then he taught from the overflow of that life. And Jesus's life was marked by abundant, radical generosity and sacrificial giving. So in Paul's exhortation to the Corinthians in his second letter to them, where he's exhorting them to give generously for the sake of the poor Christians in Jerusalem, Paul kind of sums up Jesus's entire life like this. In chapter eight of second Corinthians, he says, you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes, he became poor so that by his poverty, he could make you rich. And so I think what Paul has most in view here is the incarnation. That before coming to earth as a baby in Bethlehem, God the Son had all glory and honor and power and wealth in the heavenlies at his disposal. But as Paul says elsewhere in Philippians 2, Jesus didn't consider these divine rights something to cling to, but instead he laid them down to take the nature of a servant. He handed these rights and privileges over to the Father for the sake of others, for our sake. So the foundation of Jesus' entire life in what we call the incarnation is that he relinquished his rights for the sake of others. And then during his earthly ministry, after, by the way, growing up in relative poverty and obscurity, as we talked about last week, in the backwoods area of the Galilee, once he was kind of on the scene, 
uh, carrying out his, his ministry, one of his 12 closest uh, followers was, was tasked very specifically with distributing funds to the poor. And so even his, even his ministry itself was defined by financial generosity. And then his earthly life was bookended by the inexpressibly generous picture of sacrificial love at the cross. So the incarnation on one end and the, and the agape love at the cross on the, on the other end, we see that the sum total of his life is this audacious, extravagant generosity, the most audacious generosity that the world has ever seen. And, and his generosity, it was, it was the joyous outpouring of his loving essence. For Jesus, none of these things were carried out out of dutiful obligation, out of, out of uh, begrudging obedience. He loves to give because that is the heart of the Father. The heart of God is to give out of the overflow of love. And this brings me to kind of my central point for this Practice, which is actually a quote from J.C. Ryle, who was a 19th century Anglican priest in Liverpool, right near, uh, isn't that where Sarah lives? Close. Close, right in, in uh, Bine's fiance's neck of the woods, for now, until she joins us here. Hopefully soon. Uh, sorry, I digress. Uh, J.C. Ryle. My central point here, which is, which is a quote from, uh, from J.C. Ryle. He says, a giving Savior should have giving disciples. A giving Savior should have giving disciples. The church is to be a living demonstration of the generous, ge- generosity of God on full display to the world and to our neighbors and to our city. So... When we begin by recognizing the great generosity of God, we, we then have an infinite source of inspiration and motivation to image him to the world by doing the same, by mirroring him. So apprentices of Jesus should be marked by radical generosity. Disciples should be the most giving people on the planet. So what, what did Jesus say about money? We could easily spend all day looking at, uh, at all of his myriad teachings. But for today, I want to look at one of his central teachings, which is found in Matthew chapter 6. It's the passage that Sab read for us a, a little while ago. So if, if you've got a Bible, turn there uh, to Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19. So this is the same section of teachings that we read through together in the park Last week, this is Matthew's collection of some of the most central and well-known teachings from Jesus's ministry, often called the Sermon on the Mount. So starting in verse 19, we read, Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. So even though perhaps for all human beings, but particularly for us, wealth and material possessions, they just, they, they pull at our attention. They vie for our, for our heart's desires. Jesus promises here, they will not last. 
the message paraphrase of, uh, of a passage in 1 Timothy where, where Paul is kind of expounding on Jesus' teaching here, says, tell those rich in the world's wealth to quit being so full of themselves and so obsessed with money, which is here today and gone tomorrow. And testimony after testimony of those in our culture who have achieved great wealth and have lived, they have lived to see this reality in truth, that money does not last and it will not satisfy. Jim Carrey, uh, famous comedian, who is, you know, sort of in the in the in the, the twilight of his career of incredible success and incredible material wealth, and he boldly said, "quote I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of, so they can see that it's not the answer." And this is what Jesus is, is promising us. He goes on, store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. For wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. And this is a promise that we can take to the bank where our treasure is there our hearts will be also. It's a little bit of a chicken and the egg situation. Is it the, is it the treasure that precedes the heart or is it the heart that precedes the, the, the treasure? The line between the two is almost indivisible because where you find one, you will necessarily find the other. In other words, Jesus is saying that there are very few things that are more revelatory of the true state of our souls than what we do with our money. He goes on in verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. And the word that he uses here is an Aramaic word that, that's been carried over first into Greek and then into you know, myriad uh, biblically translated languages. It's the word mammon. And it's, and it's intended to invoke not just dollar bills or numbers in a bank account, but it's actually, it's the personification of one of those unseen powers pulling the strings behind the scenes to motivate greed and the proliferation of wealth Mammon it has come to be uh, seen as, as the personification of greed itself. And mammon is, is essentially a rival god for Yahweh, vying for the hearts of his children. So what are we to do with this? Elsewhere, he tells one, one man to sell all of his possessions and give to the money to the poor. Give the money to the poor. So are we supposed to do that? Perhaps, but I don't actually believe that Jesus's intention is that all of his people would be marked by material poverty and need. I don't think that's Jesus's point and I don't think that's his intention. I think a better answer or at least a better starting point is for us to devote ourselves to the practice of generous giving inspired by 
his life in sum total. So if the worldly value of greed is lived out mostly through the practices of getting, the kingdom virtue of generosity is lived out most through the practice of giving. Giving to those who ask, as Jesus taught. Giving to causes and initiatives that we see advancing God's kingdom agenda in our neighborhood and in our city and in our world. And perhaps most pertinently for us today, giving to the local church. Now it's beyond kind of the scope of this, this teaching today to look at a, a biblical basis for tithing. But in short, all throughout history, God's people have practiced giving by setting aside 10% of their income as what's often referred to as a first fruits offering to God. So you, you see this uh, in the life of Abraham, who sort of predated the, uh, the old covenant that was sort of officially instituted through Moses. Uh, but Abraham himself, uh, he, he gave a tithe of his flocks and his, and his material possessions to Melchizedek, who was a priest of the Lord. And then we see this encoded into the old covenant itself, where the people of Israel were instructed to tithe, give 10% of their first fruits at the temple. And out of, out of those offerings, uh, the entire tribe of, of Levites and the priests, um, that was how they were sustained uh, in, their, in their work and in their ministry. Because the Levites had no inheritance of land, so their inheritance was the tithe of the people. And then we see this in Jesus's rebuke of the Pharisees because they had this fastidious attention to tithing, even the tiny little herbs from their herb gardens, but they meanwhile neglected what, what Jesus calls the more important matters, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And so his main point is not about tithing, it's about paying attention to the more important matters, but he concludes by saying, you should have practiced the latter, tithing, without neglecting the former. And perhaps that's a, that's a key word for us right now, who as a, as a culture, we're trying to begin reckoning with our neglect of justice and mercy and faithfulness. And so the heart of Jesus is that we would prioritize those more important matters, but meanwhile, that we would not neglect the, 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 the piece of financial generosity uh, expressed through tithing. I think that's what Jesus is calling his apprentices to do. And then when you, when you look at the life of the early church in, uh, in the book of Acts, we read about the incredible generosity of those who had been taught and touched by Jesus firsthand. I actually don't think I have a, a slide for this, but uh, in Acts, I believe it's in chapter, uh, chapter four, correct me if I'm wrong on that. He says, all the believers, uh, Luke, the writer, he says, all the believers were united in heart and mind and they felt that what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. And so really what this picture is, is, is the, the tithe being blown out of the water in favor of a far more radical and abundant demonstration 
of generosity, but that was still similar in, in the fact that it, it regarded the, the pooling together of their resources, both to support those who were, who were giving considerable time to the ministry and from that to take care of the poor and the needy. And it's this incredible testimony to the power of God's people living out the, the generous lifestyle that Jesus first exemplified. So for us, um, as we first of all devote ourselves to being apprentices of Jesus, recognizing that that involves both uh, giving to the local, to support the, the work of the local church, as well as devoting ourselves to giving to those who ask of us and supporting other, other kingdom work, it can be easy to kind of get lost in where is the rule? Where is the, where is the breakdown? Um, for, for Maria and I, we have devoted ourselves pretty much our entire um, shared life together uh, these last 14 years to, a fir first of all, a commitment to tithing to our local church, which gets a little weird, honestly, because at many points along the, those 14 years, I've been supported in a salary by the local church. And yet even in the midst of receiving some material support and benefit from that, we give back to support the, the work of the local church um, at, as apprentices of Jesus. And then on top of that, we've committed ourselves to, um, to, to going up above and beyond. So we, we've supported um, a, a child through Compassion International since I think it was our first year of, of marriage. And, um, and we try to set aside a part of our household budget uh, for above and beyond giving so that we are poised and ready uh, to give when there is need and when there is opportunity. And so for us, it looks like I don't know the percentages. Maria perhaps could speak to them uh, uh, more accurately than I could, but we, we probably end up giving maybe 13 or 14% of our, of our household income. I say all that not to say that these are the rules that we must abide by, but really that there are no particular rules that we must abide by because the, as we look at in Acts, uh, it, was, it was the practice of abundant generosity. And C.S. Lewis kind of uh, expounds on this when he says that the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. Our charities, he says, should pinch and hamper us. If we live at the same level of affluence as other people who have our level of income, we are probably giving away too little. It's good. And here's, here's the real talk about this church plan. Maria and, and the kids and I have only been able to devote ourselves to this work for the last 18 months because of the 50 or so people who have committed to giving financially to see this vision become a reality. Many of those people are also tithing to support their own local churches and giving to us above and beyond. And so without those 50 or so people giving in what I would describe as, in many cases, radical generosity, uh, we wouldn't be here able to devote ourselves to this work as we are. And ultimately, this, this work will not be sustainable uh, unless we uh, work together to create a culture of generosity that's in part 
characterized by giving to support uh, the, the, the local, the work of this local church. So consider this an invitation to consider stepping towards a tithe. Tithe meaning 10%. As I say that, that might cause some of you like heart palpitations because that's so far from what you've ever imagined in the way of giving to the local church. And that's okay. I, I don't actually mean to cause you heart palpitations. And if that's you, I would say, take a step in that direction, whatever that might look like. Um, if we're going to refer to percentages, uh, it, it implies that there is something like a plan for, for, as Dave Ramsey says, telling your money to go rather than wondering where it went. Um, and so there, there's absolutely something to be said for getting our financial households in order and creating um, biblical and realistic plans for telling our money where to go. And in, within that plan, um, a 10% tithe to support the local, the local church is, is ultimately, that's, that's what we're inviting uh, launch team members to consider stepping towards. Whether that's a year from now that you've taken steps uh, to, to kind of get to that point, or whether you are already doing that or, or ready to, to, to step into that in the short term. Um, so disciples of Jesus, a, a giving savior necessitates disciples who give. And so as we, as we look at the life and the example and the teachings of Jesus, may it be that we, his apprentices would be marked by radical generosity not just to support local, the local church, but to radical expressions above and beyond to giving to anyone who has need. Um, so our, our hope and our plan is to speak more transparently about church finances with y'all in the coming days. Um, it just so happens that coming out from under Missio Day who had fairly well-wrought systems and plans and processes, both for developing individual congregational budgets and for receiving uh, financial support as a part of the much larger family. Coming out from under that uh, really kind of complicates the picture uh, for us. And so I guess I'm, I'm pleading for uh, an extended grace period for us as we are continuing to raise external support um, because I think it's going to require more than, you know, our, our relatively small group of people are going to be able to support in the, in the short term. Uh, so while we're continuing to raise external support and while we're continuing to kind of bolster our own internal giving uh, through this team, uh, before we get like a really clear picture of what the, the, the Canopy Church budget uh, looks like, but our hope and our plan is to, is to be transparent about, about that plan and about where that money is, is going to go. And just as uh, caring for the poor and the needy uh, characterized the, the church in Acts, uh, so too we are committed to that characterizing uh, our, own, our own life and our own sort of uh, handling of, of, of money as a church. Um, 
Jesus is inviting us to step into the freedom that only comes through the practice of giving. And I think he intends for this church and of course his big C church universal to be a living picture of freedom with regard to finances and material possessions that would speak a better word to our world that's so characterized by greed. Let it be so.